These occasions are really very important to us. Uh, it may not be especially important to a lot of people to uh, attend worship on a Sunday morning like, like we've done today, and certainly not Sunday evening uh, in, in a lot of people's view, but uh, every opportunity like this that we have is it's very important. We do, we do so many things when we come together like this. We praise God and we uh, uh, glorify Him by our presence and our participation in worship. Uh, we pledge our allegiance to Christ and uh, again, uh, renew our agreement and covenant with Him. Uh, we uh, express our gratitude as well for what God has done for us, especially what Christ has done for us on the cross. We proclaim the Lord's death as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And then there's a horizontal element as we describe it sometimes, as we encourage each other and admonish one another and, and uh, support each other along the way. And so, so, so many good things that we do when we come together like this. Uh, we want to take advantage of all of them as, as we're able. And we want to enter into each one as if it was our first time. And we want to sing the songs as if they were the first time that we've sung them. And uh, the words ought to be, and we strive to, for them to be, as fresh and meaningful uh, tonight when we sang them as they were the first time that we sang them. I, I suppose I've been to literally thousands of worship services like this, and maybe, maybe you have as well. And uh, I... I it wouldn't take, I, I wouldn't be able to calculate how many, but over the years, I, I'm sure it's thousands of them. But again, you know, if we can enter into a worship period like this as if it were the first time and put our heart into it and in, as enthusiastic as we were, that would, uh, maybe that'd help us a, a, a great deal. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 21 tonight. 1 Kings chapter 21. Now, in my Bible, I'm using this New American Standard Bible. The editors of the Bible, those who have published it and put it together at the beginning of this chapter, uh, describe its contents as Ahab covets Naboth's vineyard. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to do a little bit of background so we'll know who the main characters in the story are, what their character is, what they're like. And so when we come across someone's name, we'll understand who they are and kind of what they are, what kind of person they are. But we'll talk about Naboth's vineyard tonight and uh, what happens in connection with Naboth's vineyard from 1 Kings chapter 21. Well, let's talk a little bit about the characters in the story. There are three main characters in the story. Uh, there is uh, Ahab, the king of Israel. There's Naboth and there's Ahab's wife, Jezebel. Well, Naboth, he owns a vineyard. It's a very productive vineyard. It's in a fertile area, and it's it's a good it's a good would be a good vineyard to have, good piece of property to have. And there's this, this the king named Ahab. Now Ahab was the seventh king of Israel. He was born to a man named Omri. Now Omri was a very powerful king, very effective as a king of Israel. Not a great deal is said about him in the text, but we know from what was said in the text and some material about him from outside the Bible, just how strong and influential and powerful he was. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 25 says, 
Amri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. He walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, and, and in his sins which he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Amri, which he did, and his might, which he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And so that statement, uh, uh, all that he did and his might that he showed would suggest to us that he was a strong king and an effective leader from a political and maybe an economical point of view and, and all of that. And so, and so that was Ahab's father, but he was a very evil man, very wicked man. You can see that in verse 25. He did more evil than all those who came before him. Verse 28 says, Amri slept with his fathers, was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his king, reigned or became king in his place. Now Ahab followed in the footsteps of his father. He was an evil king. He was an especially exceedingly evil king. And so it's almost as if you think Amri is bad. You just read what Ahab did. And so look at verse 29. Ahab, the son of Amri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And so had a fairly lengthy reign. Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. <laughs> so that's, that's what was said of Amri. And now Ahab even exceeds his father in evil. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. And so Ahab is exceedingly evil, but to compound the problem in the situation, he married Jezebel. Now, you don't have to know very much about the Bible to know that Jezebel was, is not going to be a good character. She, she's especially evil herself. Now, she's not an Israelite. She comes from Ethbiel, the king of the Sidonians, and so over near Tyre and Sidon. And so Ahab marries her, brings her into Israel as, uh, as the queen, as his wife. Ahab also made the Asherah, verse 33 says, which is an idol, a female idol. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so, again, just for the sake of emphasis, the writer says he did, he did more evil than all that were before him. We can kind of uh, trace out the evil acts of of Ahab a little bit. Look at chapter 21, the chapter we're going to spend most of our time in tonight. In verse 25, it says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And so he was intent on doing evil in and of himself, but Jezebel seems to even spur him on more uh, than uh, he was inclined to do. He acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. And so, just an especially evil king. It was during the days of Ahab that God raised up Elijah. And so these, these prophets are raised up in especially difficult times, especially evil times or challenging times spiritually. And so here's one of the great prophets of Israel, Elijah, that God raises up during the days of Ahab to try to counteract his evil influence 
in Israel. And so you can see that, for example, in chapter 17 and verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, and so here we have Elijah back in chapter 16 and verse 1. We're first entered, uh, let's see, uh, uh, well here chapter 17 we're first introduced to uh, Elijah. In chapter 18 we read about the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So remember on Mount Carmel gathered together the prophets of Baal and challenged them to call, you know, bring, send fire down from heaven to consume their sacrifice, which of course they couldn't do. And then there's Elijah builds an altar to the Lord and calls upon God to consume the sacrifice with fire, which God does do. And as a result of that, Jezebel tries to have Elijah killed. And so all of that simply illustrates, it's an attempt to illustrate just the degree to which Ahab and his wife Jezebel were responsible for evil in in, Assyria, in, in Israel. So not only were they evil themselves, that's bad enough, but they tried to kill Elijah, who is the source of righteousness in Israel. So we're going to do, is, we're going to do evil, and we're going to try to get rid of everyone who's trying to do right. Well, maybe that kind of sets the stage for 1 Kings chapter 21 and, and Naboth's vineyard. And so let's begin reading just in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, a Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So that sets the stage for us. So here's this man named Naboth, and he has a vineyard. No doubt that's, that's common, but his, his vineyard is in Jezreel. Now Jezreel is a very fertile area, and uh, you could really grow some some good grapes there, your vineyard would be productive and, and bear fruit and all of those things. It's just a, a beautiful valley. It's an extraordinarily fertile area. It's important strategically as well. And so it sort of uh, uh, creates a, a natural passageway into Palestine and then into the, down to the, the Jordan Valley. And so travelers would come through here and armies would come through here as they entered and passed through uh, Palestine. And so this is a, this is a great place uh, to, uh, to live and to, to do your work. And Naboth has a vineyard there, very productive vineyard, and Ahab has a palace there. In fact, they're right next to each other. And so here's Ahab's palace with his property around it, no doubt. And, and then right next to the, the property is Naboth's vineyard. Well, look, look at verse 2. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's close beside my house, and I'll give you a better vineyard than it in its place, and if you like, I'll, I'll give you the price of it in money. And so here's Ahab the king, comes to Naboth, said, yeah, you got a good vineyard there, I like the location, I need a vegetable garden. <laughs> so how about giving that to me, or, or sell it, just name your price, I'll give you a fair price for it, and I'll buy it from you. I'd like to have it. Well, Naboth, Naboth refuses. And so that in verse 3. Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now what's that all about? I mean, he's going to give him a fair price. He's not trying to cheat him or steal it from him or anything. He, he offers to pay. Uh, that is, Ahab offers to pay Naboth for it. But Naboth refused it. And, and it's not that, well... 
you know, I, I like my vineyard. I don't want to give it up. It's so productive. I've had good success here. And, and I know you're not offering me enough money. It's, it's not anything like that. He said, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. What's that all about? Well, you remember that when Israel went into the land, the land was divided up between those who would settle in the land, and each family received a plot of ground. You know, each family received their, their land, their, their area. And that property was to stay in the family in perpetuity, for, forever, perpetually. Look at Leviticus chapter 23. Chapter 25, verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, God says. You're but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you're to provide for the redemption of the land. Now, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy it back, buy back what his relatives sold. Or in the case of a man who has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of his purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property." And so that the property stays with uh, one who has inherited it. It stays in that family. E even if a man becomes poor and he has to sell his property, well then his kinsman has a right to buy it from the purchaser, keep it in that, in that family. And if the man who sold it, if he gets enough money together, well then the man who bought it is required to sell it back to him. And if he never does require any money, there's a year of jubilee and the land just goes back to the original owner. And so that's what Naboth is saying. I, I, I'm not going to take the land that my forefathers inherited it and, and sell it to you. That's, that's just not, it's just not what the Lord wants to be done with this, with this land that he's, he's given us. And so again, Naboth's motivation is not monetary. He doesn't want more money than Ahab is offering. He says, the Lord forbid me. He, he wants to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. The, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers, inherited from the Lord when they settled in the land of Canaan. And so Naboth refuses to sell. Well, what's the response of Ahab? Well, look at verse 4. Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed uh, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I'll not give you the inheritance of my fathers, he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. And Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you're not eating any food? Now we have a word for that kind of response, don't we? And so he becomes sullen. He doesn't want to eat uh, and um, turn, turn, turns away his face. What, what do we call what, What's he doing? He's pouting. He's just pouting about it. Bottom lip is probably stuck out. Well, oh, Ahab wouldn't sell me the land, you know. Just, just reacting childishly. And Jezebel, she's the Lady Macbeth of the story, you know. 
Your nature is too full of the milk of human, human kindness. You just leave it to me. I'll get the vineyard for you. And so listen to the, the rest of the story here. He said to him, because I spoke to Naboth, a Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or, or else if it pleases you, I'll, I'll give you a vineyard in its place. He said, I'll not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Aren't you the king? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth, a Jezreelite. And so she plots to acquire Naboth's vineyard. She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast, seat Naboth at the head of the people, and seat two worthless men before him, and let them testify against him, saying, You cursed God and the king. Take him out and stone him to death. So she gets these false witnesses together and they're going to testify against him, make these false accusations against him. Oh, oh, you, you spoke against God. You spoke against the king. You're worthy of death. Verse 11, So the men of his city and the elders and nobles who lived in his city did as Jezebel has sent word to him, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people, and two worthless men came in and sat before him. And the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead. And Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive and he's dead. Ahab heard that Naboth was dead. Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. And so she plots to acquire Naboth's vineyard and does so by having him killed. Well, here's some, some questions I want to ask about all of that. Who, who's the godly person in the story? Well, that's, that's, not, that's not a trick question. <laughs> who's the godly? What's well, Naboth, isn't it? Naboth is the one who's concerned about doing right. He's concerned about living according to the law of the Lord. And so when, Naboth, when Ahab says, hey, how about, how about selling me your vineyard? I'll give you a fair price for it, or, or I'll give you another vineyard for it. The, the Lord, no, the Lord forbid me from for doing that and uh, giving up the possession of my fathers. And so Naboth is the godly person in the story. Now, who's the evil person in the story? Well, there are two of them, really. There, there's Ahab, and, and he's bad enough. And then there's Jezebel. If anything, she's worse. And so here you have a godly man, Naboth, and you've got evil people, Ahab and Jezebel. Who prospers in the story? Who, who comes out on top in the story? I mean, who, who, who gets what they, they wanted in the story? Well, it, it looks like Ahab does. After all, he gets the vineyard, right? That's what he wanted. He wanted the vineyard, and Naboth wanted to keep the vineyard. And Naboth, is, this is an extreme case. Naboth, it's not that he just doesn't retain the vineyard. He's killed. He's, he's killed. And Ahab just walks right over and takes it. 
Who wins? Looks like Ahab and Jezebel win. Who loses? Looks like Naboth loses. Who triumphs? Looks like the evil people triumph. The good people, they're defeated. You know, that, that happens in life sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes it looks like evil prospers and the righteous suffer. So our question is, how should we respond to that? When that happens to us, how are we to respond? Well, let's go to Psalm 73. And we're going to just take a look at... Uh, the 73rd Psalm is not about Naboth and Ahab and Jezebel. But we do get some insight into the 73rd Psalm about how to respond to these kinds of situations. It's really a terrific psalm, I suppose, in lots of ways, but terrifically speaks to this particular point. You'll notice that the psalmist is Asaph, and he describes a struggle, a problem that he has. He begins by saying, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's sort of the conclusion that he reaches as he reflects on his ordeal. But then in verse 2 he says, But as for me, you know, my feet came, came close to stumbling, and my steps had almost slipped. And so, and so he's kind of passed through the situation, and he's looking back on it, and he said, you, you know what, I just about, I just about stumbled and fell there for, for a little while. What does he mean by that? I almost gave up living a faithful life. I just about quit. Because it just didn't seem to be to my advantage to do so. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I, I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I'm, I'm trying to do right. I'm living a godly life. and It just doesn't seem to pay off for me. It's not working to my advantage. You know what? I got, I got involved in a situation and I almost got overcome and overwhelmed by it all and I just about gave up. I just about quit. What was the situation? Verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. He begins to describe the wicked and their life of ease and leisure and luxury and success and prosperity. It just looks like everything is going their way. And so let's read that. Their body is fat, verse 4, which just means, you know, they, they're living a life of ease. They sit and they eat and they got everything they want and they're growing fat. And boy, you know, it's just like they got everything going their way. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Their pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imagination of their hearts run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. And so they don't suffer like other people, including the righteous. They're no pain, no trouble. They're not plagued like other. In, in fact, just the opposite. They prosper. They're fat. They're always at ease. They're wealthy. And as a result, they're arrogant, proud, blasphemous, they have contempt for God and His people. They live, live an easy life of luxury. Well, I'm stricken every morning. Verse 14, I've been stricken all day long. You know, 
I, I get up in the morning and it starts and it doesn't stop till I go to bed. I'm just struggling. And I looked at that situation. I thought, why, why bother? Why, why keep on trying to do right? I'm getting the short end of the stick. That guy over there, he has no interest in doing what's right. And look at how he prospers. And he says, you know what? I just about fell for it. I just about stumbled. I just about slipped. Verse 21, again, indicates his, you know, his, he, he's greatly bothered by all this. Verse 21, when my heart was embittered, I was pierced within. I, I became bitter about the situation. And so it wasn't that he was just troubled. He, he resented it. He was bitter about it. But he didn't slip. Almost slipped, but he didn't slip. So what happened to him? Well, two things. Verse 16. When I pondered to understand all this, or understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. And so that's a pivotal moment in, in this crisis. I'm, I'm bitter about the situation. You know, I'm, I'm troubled and I'm pierced in the heart. And then... I went to the sanctuary of God, and that helped me put things in perspective. What I saw was their end. I perceived their end. Surely you've set them in slippery places. You, you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. And so that helped him to see the conclusion of the story See, he's in the middle of the story, you know. He's not at the end of the story. And in the, in the middle of the story, it seems like things are going one way until he begins to look at the end. How is this going to end for this prosperous guy who has no interest in doing what's right? How's this going to end for me trying to be godly? Now, going to the sanctuary, God helped him see that. Helped me see the end of the story. What's going to happen to him and what's going to happen to, to me? Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. And so this reminded him of the outcome. Those far from God will perish. Verse 27, those far from you will perish. But those who are faithful will be received into glory. Verse 24, with your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. And so going to the house of the Lord helped him to put it in perspective, helped him to think about the outcome, not the middle of the story, but, but the outcome of the story. That's one thing he did. And the other thing he did was he committed himself to God. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me. And afterward, Receive me to glory. In fact, this, this last section, oh, it's a very powerful statement, isn't it? Let's just pick up there again in verse 23 and just read to the end and just listen. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, he says to the Lord. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And af afterward, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. So heaven and earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
But God is the strength, the rock of my heart, and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Well, that's a powerful section of Scripture, isn't it? And so, I went to the house of the Lord. That helped me to see the outcome of the story. And that just created in me this desire to make a commitment to God. To be led by God's counsel. Verse 24, with your counsel you will guide me. Where are we going to find the counsel of God in this life? Where are we going to find it? God's counsel to lead us. Right right here in God's Word. I'm going to commit myself to God. I'm going to follow His Word. And I know the outcome will be to my advantage if I can do that. God will be my refuge. Let's look at this 37th Psalm, which is in some ways similar to this Psalm, but reading the 37th Psalm after the consideration of the 73rd Psalm might be even more powerful statement. I'm just going to read about 20 verses or so. So just hang in there with me. That's a long reading, I know. But just listen for ideas like, what's going to happen to the wrongdoers in life? What's going to happen to the righteous? And so just make that contrast. That's that's the contrast that's being made in, in the psalm. Don't fret because of evildoers. Don't, don't be envious of wrongdoers. They will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you'll look carefully for his place, and he'll not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, and the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have an abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They, They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by Him will inherit the land, and those cursed by Him 
will be cut off. The wrongdoers, those who plot against the righteous and desire their harm, wither, verse 2. They'll be cut off, verse 9. There'll be no more, verse 10. His day is coming, verse 13. On the other hand, the righteous will have the desires of their heart, will inherit the land, will be sustained by the Lord, and their inheritance will be forever. So trust in the Lord and do good. Commit your way to the Lord, and He will bless you. And as verse 39 says, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Just, just remember that, know that. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. What's the conclusion of all this? Well, what happened in, in Naboth's story? What was the end of that story? I mean, we, we, we ended with Naboth being killed and Ahab getting his vineyard, but, but that's not really the end of the story. Ahab is killed in battle and the dogs lick up his blood. His son Joram rules for a while, 12 years, but he's killed by Jehu. You know where they put the body of Joram? In Naboth's property. <laughs> Just a little twist of irony there. Ahab's 70 sons, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 1, they are killed by Jehu. His whole house is completely annihilated. So it takes some time. Here's 12 years. His son reigns for 12 years. After Ahab dies, his son continues his evil ways. So it, it takes a while. It takes some time. And that's what happens sometimes. It, it takes some time for God's justice to, to play out and to, and to be administered, but His justice will be administered. In the meantime, not everything that happens is going to be fair, it's going to be right, and, you know, but, but in, in eventually God will set things right, even if it takes until the day of judgment. In the day of judgment, certainly everything will be, will be dealt with. And so in the meantime, when we are in this period of injustice, commit your way to the Lord, follow God's counsel, be patient, God's in control, and His justice will be executed in judgment. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity to come together and to worship you and, and praise your name and uh, uh, show our devotion and our adoration for you. And we pray that what we've done today has been pleasing to you. We're thankful to be together and to encourage one another and to, to build each other up and help each other and support each other along the way. We live in a time, Father, when things sometimes are difficult for us as we try to do right. We try to walk in the path that you've ordained for us. And sometimes that's difficult and we become discouraged. And sometimes, Father, it may be that our feet almost slip. We just about stumble. And so, Father, we pray that you'll be with us and that you'll take us by the hand and that you'll hold us up. Help us to understand, Father, that we're in the midst of the story. We're not at the end, but help us to see the outcome of the story that you will reward the righteous. But the unrighteous, those who turn away from you, those who abandon you, they'll face your judgment. Help us, Father, not to be among them. Help us to commit ourselves to you. Help us to seek guidance from your word, your counsel. Help us to walk hand in hand with you all through the way. And help us to live in light of that day when we'll stand before you in judgment. 
And we pray, Father, that we'll live our lives with your help in a way so that we might hear you say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.